Please pray with me. Dear God, grant us listening ears and accepting hearts that we will be open to hear your word for us this morning. Help us to quiet the distractions that pull us from you so that we can be startled again by the power of life you reveal for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. During the weekday, you should see the parade of children from a joyful noise preschool as they file past Dudley, who sits enthroned in the hallway just waiting for the adoring pats and pets of the children. I'm not sure who delights in this procession more, if it's the kids or Dudley, whose tail is certainly wagging, or Bill, who's in the office and kind of looks around the corner to make sure it's going on. For those of you that don't know, Dudley is the beloved golden retriever who arrived with the Evertsburg and whose popularity is absolutely unrivaled at Kenilworth Union Church. In our children's bedrooms, we will paper their walls with dogs and cats and elephants and hippos and parakeets and owls, animals of all types, shapes, and colors. The onesies and sweatshirts they wear are adorned with frogs or bunnies or turtles. We fill their stories with images of puppies and kittens. And I know just from walking the dog, little eyes light up at the sight of an animal. With this puppy-lovey ethos, it's no surprise that the story of Noah and the Ark is one of the most popular and beloved Bible stories we teach our children. It's a story of God's love for creation, and regardless of how fierce or wild or domesticated or tame, God cared for these animals through Noah when the flood arrived. But as we tell and retell the Noah story, it can become Disney-esque, a safe place from the terrors and possibilities of the world. And although told as a children's story, it becomes a mirror for what we want to tell ourselves. We too want to go to that safe place and escape from chaos and have a chance to begin again. But when we domesticate Noah and the Ark into the children's story for ourselves, we risk taming a tale of destruction and revenge by none other than God. So after reading this entire story and studying the text, one can only wonder why would we teach our children such a story of genocide. Noah and the Ark is a foundational text of human insecurity and power, an insecurity that we need to name that arises from our personal destructive natures and the chaos we create and the chaos created by others from their self-absorbed natures. Noah may have been God's agent in saving the world, but even he too was flawed. When we read this story during Lent, it is to consider who we are and how God has revealed God's self for us. In these 40 days, we need to hold a mirror to ourselves and ponder, how are we using the power given to us by God? And how powerful is the image of God that we hold today. The antithesis of the tame children's stories is the movie Noah that was released last year. It was produced by Darren Arnofsky and starred Russell Crowe. Bill graciously loaned me his still shrink-wrapped copy so I could do my homework, but it was with no disclaimer of recommendation or otherwise. So for those of you that have not seen it, I would characterize it as a cross between the movie Transformers and the show A Game of Thrones, and a little bit of Les Mis thrown in because Russell Crowe insists on singing in the movies. (laughs) He shouldn't. 
One can sense a little bit of influence from the Creation Museum from Petersburg, Kentucky, and yes, I'll admit I'm a very tough movie critic, but no tougher than the professionals and the religious scholars who absolutely pummeled it. However wildly it deviates from the original story, and it does, it does, I promise you. I will commend, though, that the movie never loses sight of the cause for the flood is contained in our Judeo-Christian history. It was human disobedience and inhumanity towards others. With more honesty than our children's story, it does not whitewash the causes for God's anger nor attempt to tame God's power. In the movie, God remains the omnipotent creator, possessing the power to punish everything and is recognized by all of the earth as the sole sustainer of life and the only source of refuge. And the movie ends, and I will not spoil it for those of you that really want to go see it. It ends by revealing God's power to redeem through love that is recognized to be just as fierce as the power God unleashed that destroyed. Despite how badly we behave in the future, God chooses to harness God's power to punish. But this does not tame God's inherent power to love. If anything, it fuels the power to create anew. Now, knowing that scrolls and ink were precious commodities in the ancient Near East, every word in these ancient texts matter. So when a word is repeated over and over again, we are to take notice. And I gave you a hint. Maybe you didn't know which word to count, but we heard the word covenant seven times. And here was the basic message from that reading. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, this covenant is a sacred agreement. It is one way, not demanding anything from humankind. It includes all of creation, regardless of species, tribe, religion, and it is forever for us today. Setting down the bow of destruction, God surrendered forever the divine power to destroy and binds God's own self to humanity in a very new and different way. By choice, God seems to become vulnerable. Theologian David Luce writes, this act of self-limitation and investment produces a new and distinct facet into the character of God as portrayed in scripture. Along with power, justice, patience, and love, the ancient Hebrews also perceive that God is inherently self-giving, willing to enter into a relationship that puts limits on God's own prerogatives. Now, some scholars will argue the text claims that God changed God's mind from the beginning of the destruction to the end. I don't buy it. I will propose an alternate reading. We could imagine that what the text says about God is really what we know about ourselves. And it reveals a lesson for know that the power to destroy and dominate pales as compared to the power to continually recreate anew in relationships. The covenant God makes with Noah reveals God will exercise God's power to recreate creation through us and not against us. Consider the additional covenants that we hear from scriptures. There is the covenant with Abraham to bless him and enable him to be a blessing to future generations. God's covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai is to lead us into a new relationship with God and to one another to keep us in check. 
and we receive a new covenant offered to us through Jesus to recreate our life after death. God chooses the covenant as the faithful expression of relationship, repeated over time and in history and in our lives as the means of our salvation. The power of God is channeled through us to reveal the image of God in which we are made and to bring us into relationship with God and one another. Covenant is the means not just of salvation, but it is the cornerstone of God's creative power. Our fledgling Faith and Leadership series begun last year with Harry Kramer will continue this year. We have three speakers coming in. And on Friday, March 13th at 7 a.m., Sally Blount will be here. Dr. Blount is the Dean of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. She serves on several boards and is widely recognized for her creative leadership. She is also a devoted Christian and very articulate of her faith. Sally's been a strong advocate of the Emerging Leaders Series within Faith and Leadership we've held in the loop for young professionals throughout the last year. And when offered the opportunity, she speaks candidly of the challenges of wrestling with what your ego wants to do, to be lured by the rewards of public opinion, versus what it takes instead to respond to what God is calling you to be. In the multiple times I've heard her, she reminds us to recognize that market economies, particularly the trading markets, are designed for efficient execution. One can make great profits or fail miserably very, very fast. The markets do not discriminate between the good or the bad guys or the wise or the stupid. Nor are the markets, I quote, designed to be wise, kind, or fair. At the most basic level, businesses are driven to achieve profits. That is the sole measure of success and sustainability. They too are not conceived to be alone, just wise, kind, or fair. To go beyond the basic requires courage and commitment to values that is not consistently rewarded in daily or even quarterly reports. Sally speaks of the challenge to tame the grisly competitive spirits that can compel you to abandon ethics and values and justice. And she'll say that although markets are not wise, kind, or fair, we are called to be as humans wise, kind, and fair, and particularly those of us who choose to be a Christian leader. We get to choose to be wise, kind, and fair. Mark relates the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert with such brevity. It was just one sentence. He was in the wilderness for 40 days tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him, period. As compared with Matthew and Luke's gospel that color the wilderness experience with images of Satan taunting a starving Jesus with food, challenging him to prove himself in ways that would satisfy his ego, and even offering him all the splendors of earth. Mark was not so verbose, yet Mark paints a scene of struggle. Very likely the wild animals represent the same forces battling within Jesus, pushing him to the very end of human endurance. Would he choose the ways of the world or remain committed to God? It is clear that Jesus is not on a pensive evening walk in the desert. He is being tested intensely. Now, the temptations that Jesus meet in the wilderness are also the temptations that we meet. It's usually when hard decisions of survival need to be made that we encounter those parts of our lives where we are weakest and our fear of being vulnerable drives us to give in to beasts 
or worst yet, become a beast. We know all too well in our hearts lies the very best of God and also the potential for the worst of humankind. Ben Campbell Johnson, who is retired from Columbia Theological Seminary, is known to have taught, I quote, God has profound respect for human freedom. God will not make us do anything or force God's self upon our lives. We have the freedom to choose to live for ourselves, to dominate and destroy others. Or we could choose to feed the power we have to live in ways that honors God's love for us, to be a power for good, a fierce competitor, advocating for justice and fairness. Now in the 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter, we are to walk the road of self-examination called Lent. During Lent, we are to remember God still has the power to make everyone act with justice, generosity, and kindness, or to reclaim the power to destroy all of what's wrong with humankind. But God doesn't coerce any of this. God doesn't do it. God leaves it up to us. During Lent, we are to remember the person of God made known in Jesus chose to take on human flesh, to walk into the face of tyranny and accept the worst humankind could inflict. And on Monday, Thursday, we are to feel the despair and taste the bitterness of betrayal with him and maybe stand as one of those who accused him. During Lent, we are to prepare for the day. We're to prepare for the morning that God revealed an empty tomb and to receive the fierce power to know that the evils of the world or the evils within will not win. Human life and God's love will not end in death. During Lent, we're called to reflect on how closely we have embraced and believe in the power of God to recreate us. We're to remember the repeated covenants God has offered through rainbows and the bread and the cup, and to decide if we can respond with faith and gratitude. As we close, the ways we attempt to name, to tame the story of God's power reminded me of a famous passage from the author Annie Dillard in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. She writes of the way we have allowed ourselves to water down the story we tell of God and the story we tell ourselves of what we can do and be and create. So this is from Annie Dillard. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to a point in which we can never return. Now let the child and the child in us revel in the delights of animal stories and God's love. But we are also mature and we need to embrace the power God possesses to grant us life. We need to turn to that power to sustain us in our dark hours and to believe in the power beyond this world that was big enough to roll away the stone to the grave. Amen.